Welcome to episode 33 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again is Mr. Jim Radloff. Welcome back, Jim. Thank you for having me. So this week we are talking about Avengers vs. X-Men. Not to be confused with X-Men vs. Avengers, there have been two similar events. This is not the one that was a four-issue miniseries in the late 80s, early 90s. This is the one that ran through issues 0 to 12 of a standalone event in 2012 and marks the first major event under Axel Alonso as editor-in-chief. Now, it was a very different structure for most events. It was plotted by something of a brain trust. So the credited plotters on every issue were Jason Aaron, Brian Michael Bendis, Ed Brubaker, Jonathan Hickman, and Matt Fraction. They took turns scripting. So only one of these individuals would script each individual issue, but they all planned it out, broke the story the way writers' rooms break TV seasons, and then just decided, okay, you do this issue, you do this issue, you do that issue. Similarly, there were different pencilers. Frank Cho penciled and inked a portion of just issue zero, while the rest were penciled by John Romita Jr., Olivier Quarpel, assuming I'm pronouncing that correctly, and Adam Kubert. And they were inked by Scott Hanna, Mark Morales, John Dell, and Adam Kubert. Primarily colored by Laura Martin, with a little bit in the zero issue by Jason Keith, and a little bit of a fill-in by Larry Molinar to help keep the schedule at the end, because it was a pretty aggressive release schedule as well. The whole series was lettered by Chris Eliopoulos, and the editing team included assistant editors John Denning and Jake Thomas, as well as associate editor Lauren Sankovich, consulting editor Nick Lowe, editor Tom Brevoort, and editor-in-chief Axel Alonso. Cover dates ranged from May to November 2012. Release dates ranged from March 28th, 2012 to September 26th, 2012. And as you could probably guess by the episode number, this came in at number 33 in the countdown. All right, so technical details out of the way. We should probably get to the plot synopsis. So the basic premise is that the Phoenix Force came back. It was welcomed with open arms by the X-Men, but feared by the Avengers, and that put them in direct conflict. That's kind of the setup. For context, this was during the period where Hope had been the first new mutant in a long time, following the events of House of M and the X-Men believed she was intended to be the vessel for the Phoenix and be the savior of the mutant race, because they felt that they were facing extinction. So when the new Nova showed up, who appears in a couple issues here, but was even known to be Sam Alexander yet, we just knew there was a new Nova and knew what he looked like, you know, he just came crashing in, said it's coming, the Avengers used technology to discover that he was referring to the Phoenix, the X-Men used their own means, but yeah, everyone knew that the Phoenix Force was coming, and they were trying to prepare Hope to take that Phoenix Force feeling she could handle it under Scott's leadership on Utopia, because they were isolated on their sort of city-state off the coast of San Francisco. And when the Avengers showed up saying, we're going to take Hope and protect her from this Phoenix Force, because this thing has been nothing but destruction, and the X-Men said no, it came to blows involving pretty much everyone who was a member of any X-Men team or any Avengers team at the time. And in their attempts to destroy the Phoenix... The Avengers ended up splitting it into five fragments, which were absorbed and, you know, they possessed Scott Summers, Emma Frost, Peter and Ileana Rasputin, so Colossus and Magic, as well as Namor. And they decided to remake the world. So they were 
providing cheap energy for everyone and legitimately turning the world into a better place until they started to become a little dictatorial and totalitarian in it and making choices for others against their will, at which point the Avengers stepped their game back up and tried to stop them once more. And in a battle that ended up taking them to Kunlun, where they had faced the Phoenix before, and a number of other places in the world where every fallen member of the so-called Phoenix Five meant that that portion of the Phoenix Force was divided amongst the rest. It kept building and escalating, with Avengers taking pretty heavy injuries, until finally the only one of the Phoenix Five left standing was Scott Summers. And when the Avengers and Professor X and a lot of the X-Men broke away from that because the Phoenix members were going a little bit out of control, and with Emma Frost saying that she was ready to just burn the planet down and rebuild it from scratch out of the ashes, in the result of that battle, when Scott was possessed by the Phoenix Force, Professor Charles Xavier was killed. And the Phoenix Force was eventually dispersed. Scott Summers ended up in custody. And then the X-Men started putting the fragments of their lives back together again. That's kind of the nutshell version. There's a few other particular details, but do you think I missed anything of major significance? If you did, we'll cover it looking at the meanings behind it and the different tropes employed in this. When I looked at this for this reading, one of the main things I considered about it is the fact that each issue is actually listed by a round number rather than an issue number or just saying number such and such. So it's AVX or Avengers vs. X-Men AVX round one, round two, round three, and they go 12 rounds, not counting issue zero, which is just a setup of who Hope and the Scarlet Witch are. And I thought about that because, you know, it's just clearly an allusion to boxing or wrestling. And when I was looking at that, I thought about what this really was for me as a reader was this was the Avengers for a wide margin having a heel turn. For those unfamiliar with wrestling, heels and baby faces are the bad guys and good guys or villains and heroes of the squared circle where baby faces or faces are generally more favorable to the crowd and the good role models and such and the villains who cheat and lie and all that stuff are the heels and when you just look at what goes through everybody's heads it's pretty clear that the x-men are some baby faces who do get corrupted but a lot of it is because the Avengers are such heels. They're very much bullies to the X-Men, uh, specifically to Cyclops and those closest to him. There is some of that. I mean, when, when the Avengers show up, as Captain America explicitly states, they're not asking to help protect Hope. They are saying, we are going to protect Hope. Yeah, and they're not saying how. We've discussed this. I don't know how much it's made it into the recordings a couple times on previous podcasts during one of the crossovers that didn't make it onto this countdown fear itself the juggernaut was powered up by one of the fall or one of the worthy hammers uh, similar to thor's hammers with crazy asgardian power and decided to attack san francisco where the x-men were living at the time and told them that if either the mutant population or the human population would betray the other the Juggernaut would spare the one that attacked, and the X-Men immediately leapt into action to protect the humans, and when their first attempt failed, trying to route him far before he reached San Francisco, 
The mayor asked Cyclops, so I guess this means you're going to plan B? And he replied, no, we're going to plan two. Plan B implies you only have 26 of them. So Cyclops is someone who always has options and fail-safe ideas. And the Avengers don't have that here. The Avengers show up on Utopia and say, we're taking this girl. They don't say what they plan to do with her or what they're going to do if the Phoenix does reach her, how they're going to try to stop the Phoenix from reaching her, anything like that. They just say, we're going to take her. And bearing in mind that if you know the story behind these characters, Hope is more or less Cyclops' adoptive granddaughter. And while the two of them might not personally be very close, the reason I consider her his adoptive granddaughter is she's the adoptive daughter of Cable, who is Cyclops' son, who gave his life making sure that she made it safely to Utopia. And it, it's just basically Captain America saying, you have to trust me without me giving you any reason to trust me that I'm going to do your job better than you do without telling you what my idea is. Yeah, there's a definite lack of communication on the part of the Avengers, partly because at that point, I don't think Captain America had a plan. Everything Captain knew about that was Tony's working on it. And he has such absolute faith in Tony that for him, that was enough. Well, and Captain America actually doesn't even have all of the information that's necessary to make a good plan. In issue, I think it's issue one, he and Iron Man are briefing the president on the Phoenix. And they actually give some misleading aspects to the report. They say that the Phoenix is a parasite, that it latches onto a host, and that it lays waste to the environment. And he says that we know this based on the Jean Grey incident, which is kind of a head-scratcher to me because I don't know if they're talking about the the Phoenix Saga or the Dark Phoenix Saga, but the Phoenix has been very active since then. You know, it's at the point where a couple issues down the road, the X-Men have a mole in the Jean Grey school, girl codenamed Phoenix, Rachel Grey, who is either Cyclops' daughter or stepdaughter. I don't know if her lineage is made clear other than Jean being her mother, but the Avengers ignore a great deal of the history of the X-Men and the world in general's relationship with the Phoenix. It's like saying that looking at the military history of Canada and the United States, that, oh, they're clearly enemies because the War of 1812, and just totally ignoring everything that happened since then. Yeah, yeah I can see that it is definitely a biased viewpoint that they bring in, but... I don't know, at the same time, even with that history, my biggest problem with the story from the outset is that Cyclops was willing to accept the Phoenix coming in and hope as the host. Because if you go back to the history with the Phoenix, their first experience with it was when it essentially killed Jean. It put her in a cocoon. It took over her life. That's the woman he fell in love with. And then there was enough of Jean left in that copy of her to realize that the only way to protect the universe was essentially suicide to stop the Phoenix Force right there. I mean, billions died in the Dark Phoenix Saga. Not millions with an M, billions with a B. So it took the most important woman in his life away from him in a step that was so devastating, he ended up quitting the X-Men for years, came back only when they found out Jean wasn't dead. But it's 
Yeah, I just had a hard time accepting the fact that Scott was willing to accept the Phoenix coming in because it had so lost so much personally. If he was going to be acting just totally irrational, saying, no, this is it, to the point where people are questioning it, I would expect that to be on the anti-Phoenix side and not the pro-Phoenix side. So as much as the Avengers came in and started dictating, to me, I would have expected Scott Summers to say, we've got the same goals. Let's talk about how we achieve that together, because I don't know if you guys are equipped to do this well. You don't know the Phoenix as well as we do, right? Give Cap a little bit more briefing, and I would have seen it as more a cooperative effort than this 12-issue opposition that it became. To me, there should have been a line that said, you know, the Phoenix was already influencing them from a distance because it had the ability to do that, to make him open to its arrival. That bit alone would have helped a lot. One of the problems with this crossover is your opinion is going to vary quite significantly based on how many of this Phoenix stories, well, how many stories in general you have read. For me, like I said, they're talking about the Jean Grey incident, so I'm assuming they're talking about the the Dark Phoenix saga, probably not the Phoenix saga, but also probably not either War Song or End Song, the shorter miniseries that came out in the early 2000s, I believe. Yeah, I believe they were done by Greg Pak and Greg Land. Cyclops, I think, is more receptive this time because he's seen that people can control the Phoenix Force. Part of the reason I didn't remember... If there was a Jean Grey incident when she died and has currently stayed dead, is I wasn't reading that series at the time, but I was very much into Uncanny X-Men, which in the aftermath of Decimation had two people actually wielding portions of the Phoenix Force, Rachel Grey and, well, actually Corvus. Corvus had Blade that actually contained part of the Phoenix Force. Rachel had control it for years it had been pretty much her birthright being gene's daughter quentin choir had used it a couple of the stepford cuckoos so it had actually been controlled to a degree a couple of times and having had the idea from the get-go that hope was going to control it because there was that surge of energy when hope was born back in a uh, second coming the second coming crossover I, I'm pretty sure that's about when Cyclops thought that the Phoenix might come for her, and he's probably been planning this the entire time, trying to figure out what could go wrong and how to stop it from going wrong. See, you know what? That's entirely possible. I haven't read either more song or end song, so I've only read Phoenix stories where things ended very, very badly because of the Phoenix Force. So it may be that Cyclops would have been open to it because of his experiences in those stories I haven't read yet. But in that case, then, the issue with this story is not work with Cyclops' character. It's the selective recapping of only talking about the destructive instances of the Phoenix and not the other sides. Because if this is the first story you've read, the only background you get on the Phoenix is the background in the briefing that the Avengers give the president. So all you know is it's this massive destructive force. We don't understand why the X-Men are there supporting it. If they're having cases where it came out well and people controlled it, that should have been part of the expositional recap in those early issues to remind us that, hey, this is doable, and Cyclops is not completely nuts. Well, I'm talking about how if you've only read this as opposed to other issues, one of the things about this crossover is, as I mentioned, the Avengers kind of being heels and the X-Men being baby faces. You do get a bit more gray area than that. There are definitely face pops and there's heel heat for the other sides, but... It's much more pronounced if you read the peripheral titles. 
the crossovers with uh, Wolverine and the X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, New Avengers, Avengers, Avengers Academy, and like, the Avengers come off as much worse, and the X-Men come off as somewhat better in there. There's a point where Colossus is trying to set up a date with Kitty Pride, and she's afraid of his power, and he's just getting frustrated because he's like, look, this drove the juggernaut out of me. I Another consequence of Fear Itself was Colossus had become the juggernaut, and that it that leaves him in AVX. It's They don't really draw attention to it, but this force of ultimate destruction is expunged from Colossus when the Phoenix Force bonds with him. And he's trying to be a good guy through this, and it doesn't always work. And you see that for him, he pulls himself away from Kitty when he gets frustrated enough to damage a statue. And he sees that it's a statue of Jean Grey and says, I have to go, and just leaves. So he can be volatile with this, but only with a great amount of frustration. And he regains his composure very quickly. When each side wins, they take members of the other side prisoner. When the Avengers drive the X-Men from Utopia, they capture the children and put them in the Avengers Academy, which, if you just look at the covers of that issue, you would assume is horrible because it shows them in shackles and the control collars that you saw in the X-Men animated series and various issues that it's inspired by and overseen by Sentinels. And it's very much meant to invoke the idea of a concentration camp. And the X-Men, when they, one, when they get the students released, and two, when they're more in control, Emma Frost goes and says, we would prefer if you let our kids go. And also, I'm going to destroy that Sentinel because it's a murderous robot designed to murder mutants. And Justin, I believe was his name, the boy who's sort of bonded with Sentinel says, no, no, please don't. He's my friend. And after very little violence, and definitely not the violence she's capable of, Emma Frost is basically like, oh, me destroying this robot will make a little boy cry? Then I'm not going to destroy this robot. We have Avengers actually injuring children and threatening children here. <laughs> These are not people being nice. I mean, I know... I understand that they're trying to protect people, but when we did Captain America 25, we talked about how the challenge of writing Captain America is how do you come up with a compelling story for a person who always makes the right decision? Captain America doesn't make a single right decision in this entire crossover. Yeah. In this case, as a reader, I agree with the position of the Avengers, but not most of their methods especially, as you said, when you go through the tie-ins. This time, rereading it, I only read the AVX 0 through 12 and deliberately did not read the crossovers. Because as people know, when I try to read these, I try to stick specifically to the issues that are listed on that, that countdown. So a lot of that is omitted if you only stick to what's in the core book. Yeah, a lot of that was going on everywhere, which will, of course, color which side you're on. Like you said, if you read the complete crossover with all the tie-ins, the Avengers are not shown in a very positive light. Yeah, and some of that was because I hadn't read these at all. I mean, just talking a little bit about my personal history, how I got involved. There was a period when I was buying every Marvel event and every issue that tied in with it. By this time, I was being a little more selective. So I was reading 
all the issues of the main event and only the crossovers I was already picking up. So because of that, I read more of the Avengers crossovers. So I hadn't read that Wolverine and the X-Men crossover that you mentioned with Justin and his Sentinel or a number of the others. That's that's actually Avengers Academy. The date okay. with Kitty is Wolverine and the X-Men. Okay, right. Okay, so I have read that because I was reading Avengers Academy, but I haven't, aside from issues 0 through 12, I haven't reread any of these since they were published three years ago. So I'm a little muddy on some of the details outside of these issues. But yeah, this was, as we said, the this is the first event under Axel Alonso's purview. So I think that when I look at the impact it has, this has a couple of impacts. First of all, we get the status quo shakeup that we've come to expect from the big crossover events, right? And if you're reading any of the titles on either the X-Men or Avengers side of the Marvel Universe, there's a before and after and never the twain shall meet, right? They are definitely two different states when we're looking at these. So we can get to that a little more in detail later. But yeah, there's, I mean, the leader of the X-Men ends up in custody, right? Then and there, you're going to have some changes. But as far as the industry goes, this actually changed the way Marvel does a lot of their events. So for a long time, Marvel was doing this, where it was tag team creative teams. You know, sometimes with one writer, but definitely tag teaming artists, as with Age of Ultron. So it actually brought down the overall size of the event. You didn't have as many crossovers, and the crossovers don't feel quite as drawn out just because it's packed into the schedule. Most of these issues were coming out two weeks apart. It actually says to be continued in two weeks at the end of each issue. Yeah, it's not. There's one gap early on that's three weeks, and then there's another one near the end that's four. But for the most part, these were coming out very rapidly. And the tie-in issues actually tell the story so well, filling in details that you don't necessarily have to read the entire 12 issues to understand the whole 12 issues if you're reading other stuff too. I actually didn't realize at the time that I hadn't read all 12 issues. So when I signed up to record this podcast and pulled the issues off my shelf, I looked and I was like, wait a minute, I don't have issue two? I better go buy that. And I went back and bought it and I hadn't thought about needing it because that's covered so well in other stuff. It's the issue where the fighting has just begun between the Avengers and the X-Men and... Yeah, there's fighting, but nobody dies, so it's not super important. A helicarrier goes down, and you can see a, a speech bubble going to it. You can't really tell who it is, but someone's saying, he's going to crash the helicarrier. I knew it. These things always crash. So it's kind of just expected that that's going to happen, and then hope leaves. And you don't really have to understand anything else that happens that issue. And you can pick it all up for reading the other AVX series that's going on at the same time that's just the fights. Yeah. That was confusing, by the way, that they had AVX and Avengers versus X-Men at the same time, and one of them was the story, and one of them was just the fights. And I remember it being difficult at the time to figure out which one was which, just so I knew that I was getting the main series. And as I said, I had one hole. Yeah, that was another part of Axel's idea, was let's keep the main thing focused on the story and shunt off the big action scenes to this book over here, which is nothing but action. So, you know, you'll see Red Hulk and Thing punching each other on the bottom of the ocean, and then you don't see Red Hulk for several more issues. And you've got to go to AVX to see the beatdown that he got that took him off the table for a while. Which, again, if this is the Hulk that punched out the Watcher, I'm going, really? Can the Thing take this one? But anyway. Colossus, you mean? Or Yeah, it was Colossus. Yeah. yeah. If I remember correctly, he did... Yeah, it was Thing versus Namor, but... 
Yeah, I think yeah. Colossus ended up winning that fight just because he managed to bring the fight underwater where Red Hulk needed to breathe and Colossus didn't. Yeah, there there are some interesting concepts in the fights, but some of them just really don't make sense, like Iron Man and Magneto grappling and going up into the upper atmosphere, so to keep himself from suffocating, Magneto just kind of closes his helmet around his face because, you know, that would work. Yeah, he can make the air seal. It doesn't mean there's enough air in there to breathe. Well, and he doesn't seal it around his eyes at all, so that lets him see, and I'm just like, what? And also, isn't one of the main problems of being in the upper atmosphere, as we saw in Iron Man 1, that it's very cold? Yeah. But comic book physics. Yeah. I mean, this is the same crossover where Wolverine gets dropped out of a Quinjet in Antarctica and keeps himself warm by skinning a polar bear. Yep. Well, there are no Tauntauns available, so you got to come up with something. Yeah. That he couldn't find something from that hemisphere to... Yeah. Well, and and one of the things that's just kind of strange about the format is characters do seem to appear and disappear almost without you knowing what happened to them. Like Protector, who's a Kree warrior who's been working with the X-Men or with the Avengers for a little while, just sort of goes into space with... I think it was the Secret Avengers title. Um, I know Thor was on the team. I think Valkyrie was on the team, and I I just know they, they went to the Kree homeworld, and you don't see Protector again, and you're like, well, is he captured? Is he dead? And unless you read Secret Avengers, no, he actually got kicked off the team because the Kree basically agreed with the X-Men, and the Avengers just kind of opposed one of their sometimes allies, sometimes enemies, and kicked one of their allies off the team because he didn't do what they told him to. The Avengers, you know, take prisoners and are taken prisoners, so you can never really quite tell who is or isn't a prisoner and who's just not on panel. Yeah, the roster is really hard to follow if you're not reading the tie-ins. That's for sure. I think it's basically the only ones that are free the entire time are of the Avengers are Iron Fist, Spider-Man, Iron Man, and Captain America. Yeah. Those are the, the main ones. I mean, you always see who's on the page, and they kind of give you some briefing. They show you some of the people who are captured and who are injured. But without reading the times, sometimes you don't get why that person's over in that hospital bed, or why that one's chained up or cuffed. Like, So the broad strokes are easy to follow. But if you like to follow every detail of every character, you're going to need to go beyond these 13 issues and really read the tie-ins. But, yeah, I think that's that covers the plot and the, the significance and the impact. So now it's time to go through the portion of the podcast that I have shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that everybody should be listening to. They're doing great stuff. And look to see if there's any messages, morals, or meanings within this. And, you know, just look at those deeper meanings. And I, I think there are some in this for sure. Jim's already brought up the importance of if you're going into a situation that you know is a sticky situation, you should be open to communication and, and have your plans and details ready. Because that's part of the issue is when the Avengers showed up on the X-Men's doorstep saying, this is what we're doing. They didn't have a plan, nor did they attempt to communicate one. It was very much dictating, yeah, this is happening. And as Cyclops pointed out, yeah, and when have you been there to help us in the past? All the X-Men events that were stuck in the X-Men core in the universe that the Avengers didn't get involved in, like the Genosha massacre and all this stuff. Well, and I actually noticed this when the Infinity crossover happened after this. I kind of pointed out that Infinity, the the X-Men were shown to have been beaten by Thanos' forces and just kind of lying around. But 
before that, the X-Men had been involved in every Avengers crossover, except for something that happened, like, right after this. I think it was called, like, End Times or something like that. But otherwise, the X-Men had been involved in every Avengers crossover since House of M. But the X-Men had had a good number of crossovers without the Avengers. You know, they'd had Messiah Complex, Second Coming, Endangered Species, and a couple of other things. And every time there was a company-wide event, the X-Men were there and the Avengers were there. But then there were also, like I said, things where it was just the X-Men facing major threats and the Avengers are not here. And the only one of them where I can even remember the Avengers trying to show up was Second Coming, where they were trying to get Hope back to Utopia. And when they finally got her there, the I think it was the Church of Humanity that was the main villains there, set up a force field around San Francisco to, or Utopia, might have been Utopia at the time, but set up a force field to keep to keep the X-Men in and keep everyone else out. So you saw Iron Man and a couple other Avengers trying to get in, but they weren't actually able to help out in the crossover. Yeah, there's been a lot of events where it seems like just Marvel editorial decided, okay, the X-Men events stay in the X-Men group. And they largely had a reason to, you know, from a publication standpoint, to cross over between the titles. Well, and going back to the whole heel-face thing from before, the X-Men are very much underdogs in most stories because fans love an underdog. You look better attacking from a place of weakness and trying to protect the weak than and yourself when you are weak than if you're the strong one attacking someone weaker than you and the deck always seems stacked against the x-men yeah yeah that has been their lot in life from the start but and and i still think it's funny that you know the x-men do try to talk out differences even when they're not the underdogs issue six captain america is asking the different groups of avengers what's going on and iron fist is saying oh we were in trouble in eastern europe we walked into a zach's nest and it looked like it was going to slaughter us and then out of the siege courageous which is i guess the new teleportation device that the x-men are using in this colossus stepped and he saved us and captain america's like well did you observe anything during the fight did he show any signs of weakness and iron fist is like there wasn't actually a fight they just sort of talked it out i don't speak electric but the end result was them agreeing to act as a power grid for eastern europe yeah yeah so you can see that when you know when they get to it until namor shows up at wakanda they are actually doing good things but i think a big part of this if we're looking at the deeper meanings absolute power corrupts absolutely is is definitely something that shows up here yeah because when these five characters first get the phoenix power they are doing things like the one you just described where you know, they really are making the world a better place. They are feeding the hungry. They are getting cheap power worldwide. Like, they are making the planet someplace better. But as they keep going and you see how Emma Frost wants to burn the world down and build a new one, you see how Namor just destroys Wakanda, which is part of why the Avengers are so opposed to him, because, hey, look what they just did to Black Panther's home. But part of that is absolute power corrupts absolutely, but not alone. A lot of this is kicked off by other things that the Avengers have done. You know, the reason Namor goes to Wakanda, yes, his personal 
goal is to defeat the Avengers, but the stated goal that Emma Frost gives him is that, oh yeah, one of our children that the Avengers took prisoner, I can read minds, I know where she is, she's in Wakanda, the Avengers are holding her there, and I haven't told Cyclops yet. So he's at least allegedly going there to free her. But more than that, the Avengers have been attacking the X-Men and specifically their children without actually trying to find a way to splinter the Phoenix Force or get it under control. Because a big thing here is whether or not the Phoenix is something that the X-Men actually are controlling It's this force that when it's not being controlled is shown to eat entire star systems. And the X-Men appear to at least for now be containing it. And the Avengers are just trying to, I know they want to destroy the Phoenix, but that doesn't seem to be possible through most of the series. So their alternative seems to be just beat the guys who are containing it and then it won't be contained. And that's just a bigger problem to me. Yeah. I won't support the Avengers' methods in this by any means, but like I said, it's my own reading experience with the Phoenix, which was not contradicted by anything in exposition, is that this is not a, a thing you want to have around. And, and I mean, we see that in the way it's corrupted. I'm sure that Emma sent Namor to Wakanda solo because of Namor's history with Wakanda. I think she was expecting him to destroy the nation and just tear it apart to save those kids. I think that destruction was part of Emma's plan under the influence of the Phoenix. And given Emma's history and Namor's history, I get why those two are the the first two to turn. Well, Magic's really the first one to turn. Again, she's got her history with the Dark Child, so that makes sense as well. Yeah, because the... Is it... Issue 7 is when the X-Men start hunting down the Avengers, trying to imprison them, and Cyclops sort of says, this is a rescue mission. that We're trying to stop them from hurting innocent people. And Namor and Magic both say they should have, they should be killing some of them. Specifically, Emma makes extra crispy Hawkeye, and Wanda thinks that Hawkeye's dead, but Emma says, you know, the power, I could have easily killed him, but I didn't. And Cyclops is like, no, we're, we're heroes, we don't kill. And that's the same issue where Namor attacks Wakanda. So yeah, Namor and Magic do sort of turn at the same time, but Namor's voice in his ear is Emma, who just kind of is being corrupted herself and is aware at times that she's being corrupted. Magic has the voice in her ear of her brother Colossus, who, as I said, other than Cyclops, who quite frankly has the patience of a saint in here, is the most in control, although definitely not blameless. I do feel a certain type of pity for him because in one of the later issues when the Avengers are trying to free their allies from the volcanic layer uh, prison that magic is set up in Siberia, uh, she goes to grab Colossus before she goes to face the Avengers. And he has given a group of whales some weird like spider legs because he thought they would like walking on the land, but he forgot that they aren't very good at breathing outside of water so they appear to be dead and he just sort of almost innocently says after we're done with this can you help me make more whales and right before he fights magic he says that he's worried about her he doesn't like what this is done to her maybe she should give him 
her portion of the power so that it doesn't hurt her and make her crazy anymore, which is pretty much how he became the juggernaut earlier. There is a lot there, and we see, you know, a lot of Colossus's good intentions and that self-sacrifice that's been part of him right from the start. But, yeah, that is a lot of his exploring when we see how this power corrupts different people at different rates and to different degrees. And even though Cyclops is kind of the... Well, Colossus isn't totally corrupted. He makes some bad choices, but he's really beat down by magic before he gets corrupted. And then from there, Cyclops is the one that lasts the longest before the Phoenix corrupts him when he's got the full Phoenix Force in him, which is why he kills Professor Xavier. You know, without the Phoenix Force, that never would have happened. Well, and one of the things that's really sad about Cyclops is for all of the stop this, surrender to us, do what we say that the Avengers spout out, well, specifically Captain America spouts out through this entire thing. There's only one thing that Cyclops really could have done differently, because let's be honest, there was no point where he was going to let Hope go and just surrender her to the Avengers. So the only point where he really had a choice in something he could have done that would have made things come out differently is, I think it was issue six, six or so, that he... uh tells Hope that she's free to go now that he has the Phoenix power. And he kind of gives her a little bit of a berating because she rejected it. And he says now he won't just give it to her. He could, but he knows that she's not ready for it. And the first time I read this, I didn't even think about this. But this time I realized he almost could have just siphoned little bits of the power off to her at a time. And over the course of, you know, days, weeks, months given her tastes of the power until she could handle it like saying okay here's a force of cosmic energy that can extinguish a sun i'm gonna give you enough to extinguish a light bulb and then i'm gonna give you enough to extinguish all the light bulbs in the house and then all the light bulbs in a skyscraper all those light bulbs on a university until she knows how to control it and contain it as she's apparently intended to do or destined to do but Cyclops, other than thinking of that himself, never really has another option with what to do with the Phoenix. Is as I said earlier, it's either he's containing it or they're letting it free and it can destroy worlds on its own. And as for which world it would destroy, well, they're kind of releasing it at Earth. So that's not the best option. Yeah, I, I will say that nobody involved in this story has a good plan. The X-Men, the Avengers, the X-Men are trying to contain it. But again, I my experience with the Phoenix is you don't want it contained on Earth. Like, the, the best plan would be to try and get it off-world. But once it's there, to be fair, they did intercept it on the moon, so they were off-world at the time. And then it was able to get enough influence to steer them back to Earth. The X-Men had a better plan than the Avengers, although their plan was not, let's divvy it up and portion it off to hope in pieces. That would have been their backup, because they had no plans to split the Phoenix Force up at all. Their plan was, take this girl, give her the whole phoenix, and yeah, we're pretty sure we got her ready for it. Uh, there's definite issues with the approach that they have in mind here. So were there any other messages or morals that we had from this? Or Just as I said, the, the bullying thing, because I mean, as I was saying, this to me this felt like it was reading a story that's leading up to a school shooting or something like that, where, you know, it's just, Captain America is such a despicable villain to me here. I mean, this was... I know some of these stories act as jumping on points for people. This was my jumping off point for a couple of titles because 
you know, between him being so having to have such control and at the end lying about how he's going to take responsibility for the mutant public image and stuff, or if not straight out lying, absolutely failing at it because, you know, he says, oh, I'm going to put together a new team. We're going to make human mutant relations better. I'm going to do Cyclops job better than Cyclops could. And how does that work out? Oh, yeah. Cyclops, when he breaks out, is able to put together a team where over half the members, almost all of the new mutants are people who just figured out they have powers and Cyclops stopped them from being murdered by police or mobs. Well, yeah, although if you look at Captain America's direct actions following this, he basically created the Uncanny Avengers, where he was even on the team and said, no, Havoc, you're in charge. That's what people need to see to get faith in mutants. And the other thing is, like I said, this was a jumping off point for me, but when I read in hindsight, or I read back, I had it sort of described to me. I almost expected that first arc of Uncanny Avengers, but I expected sort of the opposite of it, because, you know, as we discussed Captain America Reborn, well, not, we didn't really discuss Reborn, but we discussed when Captain America died. The Red Skull's plan was to bring him back, but with the Red Skull's mind in Captain America's body. And in that limited series, we do see that the Red Skull is trapped somewhere in the back of Captain America's mind. And I really thought that with as bad a job as Captain America was doing here, I really thought it was going to turn out that the Red Skull was controlling him. And that it was going to turn out that this was going to be what released the real Captain America and they were going to find some solution that worked for everybody. But as it turned out, no, it was just everybody mistreats Cyclops. And when he finally does fight back, he gets sent to prison. It's like seeing someone who's, you know, a very good kid getting picked on and bullied at school. And then when he throws a punch, he gets thrown in detention. Well, to be fair to Cyclops, he didn't just throw a punch. He killed Professor X and threatened to remake the world. It's a little bit higher scale. Oh, he didn't, he didn't threaten to remake the world. He did. And that's another thing that really irritates me because I, I don't know why exactly T'Challa was taking the Avengers in when they were setting up their portal to Kun Loon, but T'Challa had actually tried to stay out of this because he was one of the people that saw that the X-Men were trying to do the right thing he commented that for the first time in can't remember whether he said years or decades but for the first time in a long time refugees were leaving wakanda to go back to their homes that they had fled and mm -hmm. i mean the whole stopping war between countries and groups that the x-men had set up a lot of events that happen in the real world are also represented in the Marvel Universe. A minor example being that Flash Thompson lost his legs in either Iraq or Afghanistan. But a more specific to this one is that the acts of genocide that happen in places like Darfur are actually represented in Marvel Comics, specifically the X-Men. And the X-Men for a long time haven't been able to do a whole lot about that about it other than fighting brief scrimmages because or skirmishes because they don't have an alternative group to put into power if they stop the war criminals and bad guys who are harming innocents because nobody treats mutants with trust and respect enough to 
let them run a country and protect innocent people. And now that they finally have that power, that's one of the first things they do is they just say, okay, no more war, no more plague, no more famine. Oh, three horsemen of apocalypse we're fighting and he's not actually mentioned in this crossover. It's just to me, to me, it's the difference between what's a hero and what's a good guy. The Avengers are clearly heroes. They'll throw themselves at any threat to neutralize the threat and to protect innocent people. But the X-Men are clearly good guys, you know, saying as as a real world example of a group that can be both firefighters can go into a burning building to stop people from being killed in that burning building. And then some of them, in addition to that act of heroism, can also organize toy drives to say, "Okay, this family lost everything in a fire and we feel bad for their kids. So we're going to do a fundraiser to make sure that the kids have some toys and, you know, some clothes, maybe some school supplies and books and stuff. And that's being good, you know, making the world better when you don't necessarily have to and when there's not an immediate threat. And the Avengers have that sort of ability all the time to fight, you know, their credo is sort of to face the threats that no single hero can face, but they don't really do a whole lot other than fighting. Yeah. Yeah. Not in this one. So Well, in general, the the Avengers just don't do a whole lot. Individual members might do stuff like usually when they're being villains, like in Superior Iron Man with the extremist app. But a lot of the time, the Avengers aren't really shown doing anything that's not combat related. You know, the X-Men from about the 70s, I want to say, have been about making the world a better place because they've got extraordinary powers that they didn't choose. They were just born with. So people are either going to fear and hate them or love and respect them. And a big part of that's going to be based on what they do. So they've got to be the good guys so that they can just be tolerated. Yeah. Yeah. They are definitely coming from different places with different perspectives. And the Avengers are, you know, as you said, they're heroes, but they're exclusively crime fighting heroes, right? You don't, see a lot of issues with unlike the actors who play them you don't see the avengers visiting children's hospitals that often anything like that whereas the x-men have legitimately set up a school so that mutants can get the help they need and learn how to control their powers and deal with it and that actually also might kind of be something i noticed a while ago based on who's in the avengers what what the avengers are a lot of the avengers are people who decided they wanted to be more than normal people and then got their powers as opposed to the X-Men who get their powers and then decide they want to do good. Like the, the Avengers, you know, Hawkeye is raised from childhood to be an excellent marksman. And, and then he, he's misguided to become a criminal and then he becomes a hero. Captain America decides he wants to be a soldier and then gets a super soldier serum. Ant-Man decides he wants to figure out how pin particles work, and then, you know, becomes a costumed adventurer based on that. Iron Man sees a threat and becomes Iron Man. Other than, you know, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, most of the Avengers are people who decided they wanted to be good before they decided they wanted to be superheroes, if they have a choice. And Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch started out as X-Men villains. Yeah, there's a number of Avengers that started off as villains. Yeah, a lot of them did. And like you said, it's the Avengers are there as a path of choice, whereas the X-Men 
they're mutants. They've got it. And it's a question of what do you do now? And, and the X-Men do sort of unfortunately have that pressure of representing an entire race that, you know, if we're not good guys, every, every time the world sees a bad mutant, they have to see us being good mutants. Otherwise, they think that the bad mutants represent the world where, you know, humans don't necessarily represent all humans being good or all humans being bad and even androids because, you know, the vision is probably the android they see the most and he's a hero most of the time unless Scarlet Witch turns him into a weapon against his friends, which he mentions in issue zero. Just one of the things I noticed that it's like they're trying to paint Cyclops as a villain from the first issue, but it's not until issue 10 that he really starts turning well, that Cyclops specifically starts turning because the first thing he does that seems like villainous to me is when they injure Shao Lao the dragon in Kunlun and he's close to killing it. And the, and this is named the Thunderer says, you would uh, kill an injured animal. It's like, well, it did just try to kill him, but on the flip side, yeah, he did take it out and that should be enough to. Uh, not need to kill it. I'm just, like I said, frustrated that that the Avengers ignore the fact that the Phoenix can be controlled, and that's why so many X-Men join Cyclops right away. You don't get to see them, really, because, like we said, the, the rosters for both teams really go back and forth. But, like, Rachel Gray, for most of her history, controlled the Phoenix, and it was even her code name. And yet the Avengers just keep saying, oh, the Phoenix can't be contained uh, or controlled. We need to stop them. So I think from here we should probably go through why we think it landed at this point in the rankings and why it made it into the top half of the countdown. And we already spoke a little bit about how, you know, it did definitely have an impact on the continuity for both franchises. There was a clear before and after. And it also was sort of the first step for the way the events at Marvel have been running in the Axel Alonso era. So, and on top of that, I don't know. There's enough here I see why people enjoy it. Frankly, I didn't find this as enjoyable as a lot of Marvel's other stories. Just, you know, it could be because my history with the Phoenix, my knowledge of it, and what they chose to recap here don't really explain why Cyclops took this position. And that's kind of a pretty fundamental piece for accepting the story as written. Right? It's a big part of that. And, you know, for me, Captain America, his position just doesn't make sense to me. Where he's he's got to be in control. He's got to be the guy that everyone listens to. And his whole thing is, listen to me without me actually giving you an idea of what we could do better. I will say I agree with Cap's position, but not his approach. I'd say he's right that we don't want the Phoenix on Earth or anywhere near Earth. But yeah, he needed to have a way better plan for dealing with it. I think that's why I landed here. I mean, we, there is some part of the, the morals and messages. This was a one of the first major Avengers events following the success of the movies. So that probably doesn't hurt that, yeah, eyes were on the Avengers now, and this could very well have been a first introduction to a lot of these characters as comic book characters for a lot of readers. This may very well have been a jumping-on point for a lot of people. So I, I can see why a lot of those people would be voting for it, because mechanically, it's well executed. If this is your first Marvel story, you know, as you said, it then it is clearly X-Men versus the Avengers, where, you know, if you don't know the background of the Phoenix, you can see definitely the Avengers are here as bullies, because that's, those are their methods behind what they're doing. So would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah. Okay. 
So if there's no further thoughts, then you can join us next week when we discuss Fatal Attractions, the X-Men story arc, which ran through X-Factor 92, X-Force 25, Uncanny X-Men 304, X-Men 25, Wolverine 25, and Excalibur 71. It's been collected as a whole twice, once in a trade paperback with just those six issues shortly after it came out, and more recently as a hardcover, which includes a lot more for context. That's the version I had. These issues, if you've got that massive omnibus size hardcover, these issues start on page 412. So that gives you an idea of how many other issues are included in this. You can also find some, but not all of these issues collected in Wolverine Triumphs and Tragedies trade paperback, 100 Greatest Marvels of All Time issues 3 and 4, Essential Wolverine Volume 4, Marvel Collectible Classic X-Men number 4, as well as portions of this on Comixology, on the Get Corp DVD ROMs, and two of these issues are on Marvel Digital Unlimited. So in the meantime, please feel free to rate the show on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcast catcher you use that has a rating system. It does help the show get noticed. Share it with friends. Check out our Facebook forum, where we've got the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels discussion group. And thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the -the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.